minus 10. Welcome to Laser Focused. Together, we make the impossible possible. Now here's your host, Renette Youssef. Welcome to Laser Focused, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of additive manufacturing. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and brand disruptor at Velo3D. Joining us on the show today is none other than Stefan Krauss. Stefan is one of the biggest figures in the automotive world and has a pretty impressive resume. He's currently the CIO and CFO of Lever Holdings Acquisition Corp and the founder of Evelocity. He's also served as chairman at Rolls-Royce, was the youngest ever CFO at BMW, and is the founder of Canoe. I could go on and on, but we may never get to the conversation. Stefan, so great to have you today. Thank you for having me. Of course, I've been really looking forward to this. So let's jump right in. I know I won't do it justice, but if you could give our listeners an overview and summary of your career, that would be awesome. Oh my God. (laughs) I've done a lot of stuff. So it's going to take some time, but okay. No, very simple, very simple. I did actually, you know, I was not born and raised in Germany. I was uh, born and raised in Colombia and South America. So when people watch now, I always get a kick when people uh, watch the Pablo Escobar movies. Yeah. It's, it's the time I lived in Colombia and I saw some of it and I lived through some of that. And, uh, and that was uh, quite interesting. So I went to the German school there and then I went to study in uh, Germany mm-hmm. and did got a regular business degree, went to Japan, worked for a Japanese pharmaceutical company in Tokyo as a head of management intern program there. And then went briefly back to Colombia, but the situation was super difficult to start a career there. I decided to go back to Europe, worked with BMW, ended up 20 years with BMW, was in uh, marketing, sales, finance, financial services, and engineering in the company. And uh, my last three roles were actually pretty good ones. Uh, I was sent seven years to the US. I was in New Jersey, New York, and Columbus, Ohio, where we were building the captive finance business, the leasing business. And then I returned to Europe and became head of sales for Europe. I was responsible for about a third of BMW, Rolls-Royce and uh, mini sales in Europe. I was promoted and became member of the management board of BMW and I was CFO. I was a young kid still. So obviously I definitely was in over my head. From so you're the youngest CFO, is that <laughs> I correct? Was a C- yeah, at that time I was the youngest, actually was the youngest board member of German blue chip company at that time. Ever. And yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a good time. BMW was doing good. And then in, in the time at BMW, I did start the BMW electric program. I, I ran the strategy that resulted in the BMW i3 and uh, later the i8, but I left before it was implemented. I also had the pleasure to run Rolls-Royce. I, you know, we had purchased a brand and we needed to rebuild the business. So I, I ran Rolls-Royce for a little bit, which is also kind of fun. And then I, though I got recruited by Deutsche Bank, they were looking for a CFO and that was just a few months before the financial crisis. So I hired on because at that time, obviously bankers were paid much more than industrial <laughs> board members. And I started my career at Deutsche Bank 
and became CFO and management part of the management board of Deutsche Bank. In that time, I started my job on the 1st of April of 2008, which then wow. turned out to be the longest fool's day ever. It lasted about eight years in all kinds <laughs> wow. of trouble. Yeah. So I went through all the LIBOR crisis and, you know, all the mortgage crisis. And, you know, we, we saved several banks from bankruptcy in Germany at that time, purchased some of them. We purchased Postbank, purchased Sal Oppenheim, purchased BFF. I, I did all these transactions quite interesting, but obviously we had a lot of regulatory headwinds. We, we obviously there was a, you know, big changes to the bank. The good news for me was always, I did not have my fingerprints in any of the past issues. I could, I could navigate through these years uh, pretty good. And then after eight years, I left, I went to London for about a year. I worked with Warburg Pinkos, the private equity company, did a couple of acquisitions of uh, German companies for their American portfolios. But my passion always was the cars, right? So mm -hmm. I decided to return to the car business and went to California. I had an offer to work at Faraday Future, which at that time was a startup in the EV business that had already a sizable team and had a car and obviously was quite interesting. So I went to work for Faraday, but then seeing obviously California's opportunities left with a team of people and uh, in December of 2017, and we built Canoe from scratch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our first meetings were actually in my backyard, the, the, really the classical story. We then got a couple of garages in bad buildings in uh, El Segundo next to the airport LAX. <laughs> and we started our company. We quickly hired engineers and designers and started to build the car. We wanted to have a different car than anybody else was doing. We, we had a different approach to the business. Obviously, lots of enthusiasm, did all the funding and things like that. But then had a disagreement with my main Chinese backer and uh, over time left Canoe. We listed Canoe still after three years. We, we found it in December of 17 and we listed it in December of 2020 for 2.4 billion. So that was wow. quite a success after from my backyard to the Nasdaq in three years. That was a, <laughs> it's a nice story. I worked with uh, Fisca for a little bit, helped them with their uh, DSPAC, and then also joined the board of Velo, you know, and worked on the DSPAC and, you know, with Benny and advising him on public company readiness. In the meantime, I was asked by a friend of mine to join a SPAC, and I joined the SPAC. We, we, we raised the SPAC as ourselves and are currently looking for a, a target in the European mobility space. And I'm in the midst of building my next EV company. I think, I don't know, you get drugged once and then you kind of believe <laughs> it. So, so I'm building my next EV company as we speak. It's a little ups and downs, little like always in, in the startup world, but, but moving along. It's so impressive. Actually, I forgot to mention one fun project I did in my life in, yeah. in the times at Deutsche Bank, we had financed the construction of the Cosmopolitan Casino in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. So I had this great job, you know, everything else at the Deutsche Bank job was really <laughs> tough, but that part was really nice because I could fly to Las Vegas and I recruited the people that built the Cosmopolitans. We was part of the board there. We came up with the ideas and developed. So, so we really, you know, developed the Cosmopolitan Hotel and Casino, had a great opening party, came up with all these ideas that you can see there. I wanted to build the biggest boutique hotel in the world. One of my favorite hotels, hotels actually in Vegas. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so yeah. So many of that, when we repossessed it, it was a, quite a challenge. <laughs> and uh, with a team of people, we really created all this different bus. 
that, that we created and the branding, this right amount of wrong was a marketing idea we generated. And then the idea was to, to create this biggest boutique hotel. That's why you don't see any like of the traditional high-end stores there, like Dior's and uh, Versace's and this of the world. But, but we went with different retail and we went with different restaurants because we wanted to make it more like boutique style instead yeah. of luxury only. Yeah, that was the idea. Stefan, there's so much that you mentioned that I'd love to unpack. Growing up in Colombia, I also read somewhere that your dad was in automotive. Is this correct? Yes, he was importing Volkswagens to Colombia, yeah. Okay. How did that shape your future and how do you shape, you know, your love for automotive, if at all? Yeah, well, at home, you know, automotive was always a big topic because he was importing Volkswagens to Colombia. Mm. At the beginning, obviously, that sounds like a big business, but at the beginning, you know, this was the beginning of imports in Colombia. Uh, he left, you know, he, he was as a child, he was in, in Germany during the war. Uh-huh. So when he left, he was a young person and he started really from scratch there. And yeah, there was always new cars around. There was always cars we were talking about. It was just part of the family of what we would be talking about. So what about the early stages of your career? Did that help you become an entrepreneur? Or do you always think that you're an entrepreneur and you were just in these fields and ready to break out into, you know, starting canoe? To be honest, I do believe that my father really inherited me. The, the entre- I lived in an entrepreneurial family. My father never was an employee. Mm-hmm. I grew mm-hmm. up in a very entrepreneurial... And to be honest, I always, when, when I went to study, I always wanted to, to go back and become an entrepreneur. When I started at BMW, to be honest, I promised myself I'd do this for two or three years just to learn. The idea was I learned at a large company and then I can do my own. But then, you know, my career was developing so nicely that every time I was like, okay, I'll do this too. And then two years later, the next step came, okay, I'll do this too. And and then I had the opportunity to build up the financial services business and help in the, the team to build up the financial services business in the US and, and take it, also grow it. So that way I, I was kind of an entrepreneur within the corporation because mm-hmm. to be honest, the car people didn't care so much about the finance business. That was not what they worried about. So we had a great level of freedom to develop that business. And I must say most of my entrepreneurial experience, I really got through that because it was a startup within a corporate. Uh-huh. And then later it was the same because to be honest with the cosmopolitan, you know, when I inherited it as a board member of Deutsche Bank and I had to take care of it, you know, it was a building half finished and, and there was a warehouse with 3000 wash machines and palm trees and all kinds of stuff. And we had to hire everybody, rehire people. We had to find people. It was also like a startup. So the good news in mm-hmm. these two startups, it, I never had to fundraise, which later obviously became an issue. More of an issue, but at least it was the same principles. So I, I always uh-huh. liked these jobs. Okay, so so what made you like? What was the aha moment for you to leave Deutsche Bank and the banking industry and start Canoe? It was an evolution, you know. I after fifteen years in total, which I was a member of German blue chip companies, and I had gone, you know, I did every quarterly reports, and I had an AGM, and I had all these supervisory board meetings and things like that. After 15 years, I decided I'm not going to do this again, right? So that was a little bit the, the starting point. 
but I wasn't 100% sure what to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I worked for Warburg Pinkers because I said maybe private equity is something I want to do. And, and I tried that and I did some other, I tried to raise my own fund and said maybe investing is something I want to do. So I was kind of in a, in a phase of exploration when the offer came to, to go to California and, and because it was auto, I was interested and I really moved then. Yes. And that was, I think a little bit, a big decision is to, to leave and move and go to California and, uh, start there. Yeah. So yeah, I had fallen a little bit in love with California and the whole idea because I was once interviewed by Steve Jobs as CFO of Apple. Oh, wow. It didn't work out because of his, of his death a few weeks later. Right. But I, I, I was there and I had looked around and I had already got an idea of what is, and I really liked it a lot there, the entrepreneurial spirit and everything there. So it was an evolution. And once I was at Faraday, you know, I, it, it really then, I think the environment in California and that's what California has done very well. It's, it's very entrepreneurial, you know, the whole spirit, mm-hmm. the people you talk to, the people you meet. And that kind of encouraged me to, to go full flow. Okay. But as I had done these other experiences before, obviously minus the funding part. Yeah. And I had built businesses from scratch. I wasn't so worried about that part. It was more than mm-hmm. the new experience was really, now you didn't have a corporation that was funding you. you. You had to go for the money yourself. And that certainly was a very different experience. Okay. Something that I've been meaning to ask you, the skateboard platform that Canoe was built on. Like, how did that come about and why do you think that was the right approach for this EV? So the idea was honestly an old idea that uh, Ulrich <laughs> Kranz had developed at BMW already. Yeah. And it was an idea that we always kicked around. We, and the idea was in principle in electric, yeah, because you can put all the technology in the floor of a car. Mm-hmm. It would make sense to, because obviously economies of scale are important. It would make sense to build always the same skateboard and then just build different top heads on top of it. Right. And then you would reduce the cost of development of a car mm-hmm. because most of the crash test was already in the skateboard and the components, you know, use the same component. Then instead of building, I don't know, 60,000 of one car and 60,000 of the other, you would be immediately building, you know, hundred thousands of these platforms, which would reduce the cost, right? That was the idea. And second, mm-hmm. to develop a car like this, normally it takes you about three to four years to develop and bring a car to market. And by having the skateboard, we was already 70% of the car, it would shorten that time considerably. So okay. that was an old idea that I think was just actually developed in principle, right? It, it, so, so, but n- nobody had really started to, to put this in place, right? So when we started, we were not the first ones, obviously, to building an EV. You know, Tesla was ahead and, mm-hmm. and Faraday was there and Lucid was there and Byton was there and many other startups were already in place. So when we said in my garden, we, we started to say we have to do something different. So first thing we said, what current EVs are failing at is mm-hmm. the EVs, today still look like combustion engine cars. And the reason a car looks like a car looks has something to do with the technology that's built into the car. Uh And we found it so curious and so interesting that all of a sudden you had electric cars that didn't need an engine compartment, but the cars were still looking like cars with engine compartment, right? 
And it really came, you know, the architecture of a, of a combustion engine car still comes from a horse carriage. Uh-huh. Because you had in the front, you had the, the power, the horses. In the middle, you put the passengers. And in the back, you put the luggage. And over time, as the combustion engine car developed from the horse carriage, right? In the first cars, you'd remember, they looked like horse carriages without horses. Yeah. The development of that. And we found it so interesting. Why are people still building combustion engine architectures around the EVs? Because an EV doesn't need to have a combustion engine architecture. Mm -hmm. And the benefit that we had, you have a much, much more space you need for the technology, right? In a combustion engine car, it occupies much more space. And the, if we put all the technology in the floor, now we can use all this space on top of the skateboard. That was a basic idea. So we have to still make it safe, obviously for crash. Mm-hmm. So the driver couldn't sit as in front as one of these old VW buses, right? Where you weren't really in front. It's in today's age, it's a little bit risky. So we had to sit the driver a little bit back, but we could create now more space. And then we were also learning that the millennial generation spends more time in their cars. So we wanted to create more of a living room in the car. So that's how this living room idea came and the idea was really to to create a vehicle. You you drive out to the beach and you can hang out in your vehicle. You can drive out and watch a movie in your vehicle and go away from this old-fashioned concept of a vehicle and architecture of a vehicle that, that we have today and say the way we can innovate is not just to build another Model S or, you know, the Byton mm-hmm. or the Lucid. They all look alike. The way, you know, we would go ahead is, is just to use this, the, the biggest benefit that we have in, in terms of electric platforms, yeah, is to build a car with a lot of internal space, make it small from the outside, which is good for cities, small, but, and it, because what we also saw at the same time, why are we driving all around with these SUVs, right? It's like uh-huh. super crazy. Most of these SUVs will never see a dirt road, right? They will never see uh-huh. a mountain, <laughs> right? I always feel so sorry for these Range Rovers in Beverly Hills. Because they will never, <laughs> never see a road which they were made for, right? So they must have a miserable life of just driving yeah. around, yeah, on asphalt. I'm laughing because I you have one, right? I've laughed. No, I have a Jeep. You have I have a Jeep, a Jeep. Yeah, okay. and, and we've taken it off road maybe twice. Twice, yeah. <laughs> so, but but yeah. it's kind of ridiculous that we drive around. Yeah. But when you when you ask why are people driving these cars, there there is actually mm. a good reason. Yeah, people want mm. more space in their cars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that, that was our driver said, okay, if we can combine electric and we can provide a car with more space, it doesn't have to look like an SUV either, right? Because at uh-huh. the end of the day, we want to provide something that looks cool, that's modern, that's futuristic, and that provides a lot of space for people to, to sit in, yeah? Because we humans tend to be quite irrational when it comes to cars, right? Because the truth is the following. Number one, a car is parked 90% of the time. So wow. you spend a lot of money for a car just to sit sitting in parking lots. If you think about your own car, other than commuting or going to grocery shopping, most of the time it's sitting around, right? Then out of this 10% you use it, when we go shopping, we when we have two kids, our reasoning is the following. said so we have two kids, but if everyone wants to bring a friend, I need to have mm-hmm. at least four seats for kids, right? That's what our car needs expand. 
And the one year time a year where we go skiing, we want to have a car that's good for skiing, right? We can put in the equipment or we surf. We want to have a car. So that's why we all end up with these big cars because we're, we're hatching mm-hmm. for this very little time. So it would be honestly, most cases much cheaper to rent a car for the one time in a year you need it, right? For transporting. But people buy this optionality and people, it's incredible how irrational we are because we pay a lot of money for this optionality that we drive around a whole year. And obviously That's driving so around a big car costs us a lot of money, a lot of gas, a lot of pollution, a lot of room, a lot of space, a lot of parking. But we seem to be so irrational, right? Because every small car hasn't really worked. People don't like small cars, right? So although most of the time people are sitting alone in their car, the trunk in a car gets used less than 1% uh, of the time of its usable life. And we wow. drive around and, and offer this space. So that's why our thought, for example, on the trunk was, as we use it so little, we could, in the canoe, we should rather use the space for seating because people, you know, then, then people have a more comfortable seating, right? And make more use out of the trunk space. And these were kind of all the ideas we kicked around. Yeah. And that's how we took this different approach. And that's, why the canoe vehicle looks a little bit more futuristic. Yeah, it looks very different than a traditional combustion engine car. It's not an SUV either. Yeah, it's just a, a part, a, a modern aloft on wheels. And that was the idea. Long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was amazing. I do have a question on that. Did you have to change people's minds though? Because it looks so yeah. different or was it? You did. Okay. And, yeah. and how? Like, was it like marketing, branding? We are very comfortable, you, you know, obviously we, we are an animal of, you know, of a custom and habit, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but when you look, the, the industry has done a good job of educating people, right? And changing their minds is fashion industry. Uh-huh. Because I remember when I was a child and I had a hole in my jeans, my dad would yes. get mad at me, right? <laughs> And Same. today, <laughs> if you don't have a hole in your jeans, yeah. you look like yeah. old fashioned, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. And if you think about what fashion does to us, right? If you think about, and, and funny enough, I'm sure you do this from time. If you go back in your pictures, when you, when you, when you're young, you look at what you were wearing that at that time you thought, wow, that's the, this, I'm super <laughs> cool. And this is, this is, and you look at it today and you kind of can't believe that you're wearing this stuff, right? <laughs> yes. The same, yes. I'm, I'm sure now, now that everybody's running around in jogging pants, right? I'm sure one day we're going to look at this generation running around in jogging pants, in yoga pants, sorry, yoga pants. <laughs> and we're going to yeah. get a kick out of it that we, that all these people were running around in yoga pants, yeah. right? Yeah. Most of these yoga pants probably never saw a yoga, <laughs> never yeah. were at yoga or whatever. Yeah. So what we learned that you, you can actually influence people over uh-huh. time in their taste, uh-huh. right? And today we have a very SUV taste and, and limousine taste. And, you know, people have a habit on what a car needs to look like. Right. And our view was that if we want to succeed against the big OEMs, they will continue to build that. We, we had to make a little bit of a statement. Now I had learned at BMW from our designers that you kind of have to push the boundaries, right? Okay. And don't forget the car will be launched maybe next year and then mm-hmm. it will be in the road for seven years. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're too conservative, if we just bring out another SUV now in seven years, you know, people are going to be tired of that design. And we, we lifted at BMW support very often that you launched the car. Everybody thought year one was great and beautiful car. 
Year two, you didn't find it so attractive anymore. Year three, it was just not interesting at all, right? Mm -hmm. So you do want to generate something that generates discussion that's maybe feels uncomfortable for people that maybe challenges a little bit their, their thinking. Yeah. Some of them will say it's ugly. Some of them will say, yeah, this is not a car, some of them, but over time, you know, people will start liking it. That's that mm -hmm. what fashion teaches what, and, and what you have to do obviously is, and that's the marketing part that you allude to. You support that with opinion leaders that will drive this car. You, you obviously fashion works because there are certain opinion leaders, right? That start wearing certain stuff. They are the, the innovators, right? They're a little bit more outgoing. They will dare. They want to be different. They'll dare to be different. And that's why, while all of a sudden, you know, a year later, a mainstream fashion object gets to be so popular because, you know, a star or a personality or a fashion, you know, it was shown on the, on the runway in Paris and people saw this for the first time. And later you see it on fifth Avenue and then you see it, you know, in LA and then people, you know, and that's, that's how, mm -hmm. how our opinion gets shaped. So we did a lot of study on this. We worked a lot of it. It's, it's actually a, a process you go through and you convince it and you will see people will like people to, to be honest. Uh, I think Elon did a great job with a cyber truck, right? Because he puts out something that in, in, at the beginning, everybody was laughing and saying, this is a three-year-old designer and all of this. And now they're, everybody's buying them like hotcakes and wait until they're on the road, right? Everybody, <laughs> Elon Musk, yes. Yeah. And then everybody's going <laughs> to yeah. think that an F-150 looks like a horrible old, <laughs> old car. It is true because yeah. you immediately make everybody else old looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works. Yeah. Okay. So I, I do want to ask you about something. So one of my favorite conversations with you is that time we spent an hour talking about brand. Like I, I got off the phone and I was talking to everybody about all the things I had learned. It was just <laughs> amazing. But two things came to mind as like your background is CFO, but still loves brand and marketing, right? Is that rare? And secondly, when should like entrepreneurs and innovators start thinking about the brand they want to build? First of all, um, I always was between marketing, sales and finance. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the mm -hmm. good thing at BMW, I must really say in the, in the system of BMW, you're not, you, you're not supposed to make a career in one discipline because, you know, they, they always had a very good philosophy. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably the worst manager the company uh -huh. has. Uh -huh. right? I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, management and leadership skills are different skills than being the best engineer, being the best marketeer, being the best designer, right? So BMW very early just forced you to move into, into lo locations, to move into, into jobs, right? Where you felt uncomfortable because you didn't you have a clue. You know, when I moved from BMW financial services in the US and became head of sales in Europe, we had 19 countries. In each one of these countries, we had a local country president that had been there for 10 years. There was like knew everything about, and they sent me as young kid to run these 19 people. And obviously I had no clue about sales, but I, I respected that from BMW because that forced you to mm -hmm. only go on your management skills because you couldn't, you were, you were the dumbest person in the room, right? So if you wanted them to follow you, if you wanted them to work with you, you actually had to pick their brain, right? You had to understand 
They are the ones that, that know everything. They are the, that's where the experience. So how do I engage them? How do I create a team? How do I lift all this experience? And how do I make all, and, and this is a different skill than being mm -hmm. a salesman yeah, in a, in mm -hmm. a country, right? So I, I always liked that. And I think I'm very thankful for BMW because that's at the end of the day, they taught us this difference. Yeah. And they put you in cold water and then they, they looked at you and saw if you survived. Now on the brand, you are going to have, it, it's like on a culture, you're going to have a culture, whether you like it or not, and you're going to have a brand or whether you like it or not. I think the only decision that you have is, do you want to shape it or do you just want to have, let it happen? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the difference. So there's some people that just let it happen and sometimes it works out, right? Sometimes, you know, it, it creates, and especially sometimes at young brands, yeah, mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. just happens, right? It's, it's a bunch of people that there's, and I'm, I'm sure when, when we talk about the early Apple or we talk about the early Microsoft, I think these were not necessarily brands that were crafted or, or designed or mm. long hours of thinking went into them. They were just very linked to the people that were starting this business. Yeah. It had a lot to do. And then, you know, over time, yeah, a brand then gets developed maybe, but at the beginning it just starts. Yeah. Okay. And therefore the issue is that, that I think you will get one no matter what. And therefore I personally think that when you start up a business, then maybe that's not necessarily something you spend immediately time on to answer your question. But I think that after maybe a year or two, and especially when you, when you want to then go to the outside and you know, start communicating, you should start developing your brand. You should start thinking about it because you're going to create this brand very early on. And as I told you, you know, for me, the best statement I've heard about it, you're going to occupy a, a piece of real estate in somebody's mind, right? And therefore, uh, by occupying this piece of real estate in somebody's mind, yeah, once something is built on that, it's more difficult to demolish it and start mm -hmm. over than to build it right from the beginning, right? So that's why I think once you get out, once you've developed your product, once you, you have your initial, once you go into the market phase, you should immediately start building your brand at that point. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. Now you're CEO of Move. Yeah. And the, your mission or vision is a world where last mile delivery works for people and planet. So maybe explain what last mile delivery is. And then I'd love to understand what led you to joining the team as CEO. What was the mission that really excited you? We started the company in the COVID times. Yeah. So to be honest, most of us never actually physically met Uh, last month, we finally did a meeting and we brought everybody together. But for the, the, the year that we've been working on move, yeah, nobody had physically, many people have never seen each other. Mm. Right. So we were surprised mm. about how tall or not tall people were <laughs> and things like that. So, so it was really founded in COVID time. Uh -huh. And what we had, we had said, okay, we'll do another business around TV. But what we had looked at another passenger car kind of doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And what we all learned in COVID was a couple of things. First of all, e-commerce was even more important. And to be honest for all of us, it's good that COVID hit once we had e-commerce in place, because otherwise it would have been even a worse challenge. If, the, if COVID would have hit in the seventies or sixties, this would have been really a big, big problem. Right. So True. now we had the technology and things like that. 
But what we also discover in the times in the last couple of uh, months or years is that the system is broken, right? That put under stress and, and exposed to high growth and rapid growth, right? It, it kind of, um, failed very often, right? Packages are lost. You know, it, it generates a lot of delays. It generates a lot of garbage. It's not environmentally friendly. To be honest, most of the people that work in this delivery aren't necessarily happy, right? They hate their jobs. Uh, I'm sure you've seen all these YouTubes where packages get delivered and people hate their jobs and things like yes. that. So, so on, on the one hand, we think it's so exciting that all that the market is giving so much benefit to all these companies that are starting e-commerce and, and you know, the, the Amazons and all these companies and they're, they're hyped and, and big valuations. But the backbone that makes this all possible, which is a delivery system, is just such a bad overall system, right? It, it, it really... From A to C, everything of this system failed. So that that was got us into doing move. Yeah, is to say, mm -hmm. okay, we we all have to. That's a great area to to think about. It is the backbone of e-commerce. It's gonna continue to grow. It's not delivering as it should. There's a lot of opportunity to improve it. There's a lot of opportunity to make it better. If these valuations of e-commerce company continue, there will be customers that need this urgently, and they'll have a lot of money to pay for it and, and to make sure it works, right? It's enormously wasteful, right? It generates a lot of garbage. If you think just the cardboard garbage that we generate, right? The thousands and millions of trees we destroy for this every year and things like that. We said, look, this is a great opportunity to go. So yes, we need smart packages that, that are a thousand times reusable. We need vehicles yeah we need to go to electric so it's clean yeah we need to focus on the drivers so they're happy right we need to create a better working environment for them we need to make deliveries for people efficient we need to make sure that packages are tracked and don't get lost we need to ensure that customers get packages delivered not at the house but wherever they are at the moment we need to do all of this mm -hmm. so the, the whole chain needs to become better right we need to use smaller vehicles in cities so we have faster deliveries because instead of having one truck uh, going around 80 locations we we rather have you know a smaller truck going to more locations yeah we thought about you know we have gps today so we could always you know deliver the package exactly to the driver where the location is Right? Instead of having a driver going in the back of a van and starting to look for packages and then missing half of them and, and all of these things that, that happen in, in these deliveries. And there's just so much opportunity to improve. So that's why we decided to go with Move into, into all this. Amazing. Excellent. How big is the team now? About uh, 25 mm. you know, experts in different areas. Okay. And as we are acquiring some, some businesses to put this all together, probably acquiring another hundred people okay, shortly. Wow. So we'll be, we'll be about this size. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to Velo because you're a board member. What was it about Velo 3D that inspired you to join? There's two things. <laughs> okay. I initially was interested in what Velo does, mm -hmm. which I was from my past. I knew about the engineering and design challenges on mm -hmm. components. Mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued by what uh, Velo does, right? And that was the initial. And then, to be honest, it was Benny Buller, the 
the founder and CEO, he, he's such an amazing personality. And I thought mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I wanted to work with him. Yeah. I understood his struggle of, you know, which, which very often I've seen this so often because I've worked with so many engineering people, right? And then as you move uh, your company into public markets and things like that, it's, it's a different world. I'm, I'm more from that world. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt I could, could really add value to Velo3D on its path to becoming a public company, right? So, so these, these were the two things that interest me. It's a great uh, product the company makes. It has a lot of future. Yeah. I'm really convinced about it. It will help humanity in many, many ways. It will help us to, to build better machines and better equipment and uh, it will help us to go to space. It will help us to, to fly better. It will help us to, to become more environmentally friendly and things like that. So, so obviously that's super exciting. Okay. So final couple of questions. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs, especially those interested in transportation and mobility? Okay. My, my general advice to entrepreneurs never give up. Okay. Because it's super difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you just have to live with rejection if you, if you have problems living with rejection. <laughs> because when you go funding and when you expose your ideas, you know, the large part of people don't have an imagination, don't have, you know, don't know where you drive. And, and you, you have to drive the business against so many questions, against so many skeptics. Uh, you have to sit in funding rounds where most of the people will say no to you, right? And, and will not believe in your story. And, and I think, and, and sometimes things may go wrong. So my biggest advice, never give up, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. In the mobility, and in, 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 sorry, because you asked in the mobility uh, sector, right? I think there's still a lot to do. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we, one thing I know for sure, in 20 years, we're going to move people and goods around the world differently than we do today. Wow. Right? This idea of freedom of having your private car and driving where you want, it's just not going to work anymore. We, we know the system isn't working today anymore, right? And this inefficiency and this pollution and this noise pollution and this waste, yeah, of so many cars parked around and things like that, we will have to fix all this. So I can only tell anybody interested in mobility, just envision Give yourself mm -hmm. a picture. And, and the only thing that I do sometimes, because maybe sometimes I cannot envision so well, is just I could go and look at the, at a movie of the future. And in the uh -huh. movie of the future, nobody's riding a car. They're all flying around or driving around, around with, with somebody's, a machine just comes and transports them. I never see somebody jumping in their <laughs> own, like in their own thing. Right. That's and so you true. see this, right? And then I said, <laughs> okay, let's, let's, the, the people that kind of giving us some clues. This transportation world will change completely. Excellent. Also the way goods are going to be transported, right? So therefore there's a lot to do. That's what I would tell. So I would tell you just come in there, you know, take it, take a part of it. We're only going to get this done if many collaborate, right? Mm -hmm. Forget all the old OEMs. They're not going to make it in my mind. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. too much embedded in their old systems and their old thinking around mobility being provided by selling you a car and that's the business. And it was a good business for many years, but finally, I think we will see significant changes. So in 20 years, the world will look very different and just think about it and, and go into it because I think that's one of the areas in, in which the world has to change. 
That's great advice. And I can't believe I've never noticed the futuristic movies. There's no cars. <laughs> it's, there's no cars, right? Yeah. Or, or, you know, they say, oh, we have to go to this, this. And then so, yeah. like it did, something shows up and they go in and, yeah, and it, it comes by itself. And then, and then it flies to go someplace. Yeah. And then, and it's not like they're looking for parking or they're. No. <laughs> or, or, or the, right? It's crazy. Nothing of yeah. that. And this is honestly, this is how it's going to be, right? Yeah. Because no, why should it. we worry about parking? And why should we own a piece of metal that we don't use for, for 90% of, of the time? Yeah. Yeah. Why no, are we true. so stupid to invest $80,000 and have $80,000 standing outside in the rain for, well, it kind of makes no sense, right? Why, why do we have yes. to have these SUVs that never see a dirt road anymore? And it kind of all this makes, and then we, we are in traffic for wasting our lives sitting in traffic, right? Because everybody's doing yeah. the same. And, and, and so all we can, step one said it was great. It gave us great feeling of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our children don't want to even drive anymore, right? They just yeah. don't want to have a car anymore. And, and, and it's, they're, they're right. So the point is it, it was great in the past when it worked, when we had yeah. less cars and more roads. And so now we have yeah. too many cars for what the roads and the system is not working. And therefore we'll, We'll change. Okay. We will have to change. And somebody's going to gonna do it. And yeah. <laughs> somebody's going to figure it out. And that's why I can tell entrepreneurs that just go at it. <laughs> I'm sure you've inspired a lot of entrepreneurs today, but I have one final question. And it comes from my husband. He's a car nut and very jealous that I'm talking to you today. He wants to know what your favorite car of all time is. Wow, that's a that's a loaded <laughs> question. <laughs> he, he has one. He says he's the McLaren F1, which has a BMW. Yeah, he uh, says engine, engine correct? Yeah. Engine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's oh, yeah. uh, obviously a, a very individual uh, question. <laughs> and and I would tell you first. I can tell you the choices of cars I have. Okay. That maybe give you okay. give you an, give you an idea. Okay. <laughs> so. I got a couple of, uh, of older cars of, of, of not real vintage, but, but I got a BMW from 1973. Oh, nice. Right? Okay. Which is a, a, a 3.0 CSI. And I love this car because this design is so timeless and mm -hmm. it still rides perfectly. It's very nice. I actually then also got a Corvette C1 and a C3 oh, wow. Corvettes because okay. I kind of, the C1, I really liked the, the design and the, C3 uh, is such a 70s car. It, it reminds me of the, of the 70s. And then I have a, a VW bus, the, oh, wow. the California okay. bus, right? Because I think this is the coolest car ever, right? <laughs> so, so these are the, the ones I bought at some point. I must have felt that these are really the nicest cars in the, in the world. So I got them. <laughs> and I, and I'm currently, honestly, my favorite car right now is the BMW i8 I'm driving okay. because it's, it's okay. a hybrid. It's not full electric yet. It should be. My next car for sure will be full electric and should be full electric, but it's a super nice car. It's, it, it has good looks and it drives very nicely and, and it's, uh, it's not a gas guzzler and yes. it's still fast <laughs> and things like that. So that's kind of, so I would go probably at the moment for BMW i8. Yeah. It's my favorite car. Okay. I have to tell him he's probably going to be surprised, <laughs> <laughs> but awesome. I think that's all for today. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. huge thank you to Stefan for joining us on the show today and showing us exactly why he's such a big name in automotive disruption. Thanks for listening. Please remember to leave a review or subscribe if you haven't yet so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, 
And this has been Laser Focused, where together we innovate without compromise. 